Welcome to Pink Girl Podcast. I'm Alicia Clayton, your host. This is a podcast about women's stories and all things girl power. Okay, we are recording. Welcome to the episode. I'm excited to have a good friend, Monty Garlic, with us today. Welcome, Monty. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yes, so we figured out we've known each other. So I, I just turned 38. No, 39. (laughs) So we've known each other for 37 years. Yeah. 37. Yeah. yeah. So I was two and we met in Germany. Yeah. So you were stationed over there in the army and we had moved there and we lived with you for like a month. Right. Okay. And we were just laughing about how much I loved watching Mary Poppins at your house and eating (laughs) and eating caramels. (laughs) <laughs> I don't remember the caramel stuff, but the Mary Poppins thing I remember. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. So you were stationed there. Um, how long were you in Germany? Uh, the first time we were there for three years and then came back to the States and then went back over there again for another three years. So we spent a total of six years in Germany. Okay. Yeah. So what was that like, your time in Germany? What do you remember? You know, I think the two things I remembered the most is the first time I was over there, the Cold War was still going Mm. on. And I was assigned to a unit. They they had the, the allied forces had figured that if Russia and the East Germans attacked West Germany, that they would come through a place in Germany known as the Fulda Gap. And I was assigned to the unit that was protecting the Fulda Gap itself. Okay. And, and um, so they told us the life expectancy for most military people in Germany at that time, if a full-out war started, was 24 hours. What? But our life expectancy in that unit that I belonged to was actually between 10 to 12 hours because we were only there. uh, Our main purpose for being there was just to slow down the Russians and East Germans so we could get reinforcements there. Um, And during that time, too, I I was assigned to patrol the East German, West German border. Oh, wow. uh, Quite a few times. What was that like, being border patrol? Oh, that uh, that was scary because the East Germans and Russians that were in their guard towers didn't have the rules of engagement that the Americans and West Germans had. And so they could shoot at us anytime they wanted to if they felt like we were across the border. Um, But we couldn't do the same. We had to wait till our lives were threatened before we could shoot back. And so, yeah, it was was scary because there were a lot of times my patrols were in the middle of the night and so we had to be real careful. There were actually three different border lines. One was what we call barber poles, poles mm-hmm. about three feet high that were blue and white. Mm-hmm. And then 
it had there was the fence on the east german side which was lined with their guard towers and between the, the red and white poles and the fence was anywhere between 50 and 100 meters. Yeah. And right in between that was the actual border between East and West Germany. And they had big 50 foot, uh, oh, I don't know if they were 50, 20 foot cement mm -hmm. um, pillars that had the national insignia on either side of the pillar to tell you what side of the border you were on. But the Americans were not allowed to go on the East German side of the blue and white poles. Mm -hmm. So even though we may have strayed into that area, we weren't actually in East Germany unless we went past those big cement pillars. Yeah. Um, but patrolling at night, you know, it was, it was hard because you couldn't see anything. We had our night vision goggles, but, you know, um, they weren't good enough to keep us out of trouble, I guess, but <laughs> it was. Because <laughs> this was in the 80s. The mid-80s. The mid-80s. Yeah. Yeah. So did you, um, did you get shot at a number of times? No, okay. luckily um, we never did. There were patrols that did, but the ones that I went on, we never experienced that. Yeah. Uh, luckily, we did find ourselves on the East German side of those blue and white poles one time, which was scary because oh, yeah. that that uh, buffer zone in there in some areas, and we never knew what areas they were were planted with landmines oh yeah Man. and so you know we we that was a really tense time for us when we found ourselves in that area because we had to back out of there exactly the way we came in. Oh, man. Uh, to try and, you know, because we made it in there without anybody getting blown up. But we didn't right. know where we were. Right. So we had to backtrack exactly the way we came in so we could make sure we got out of there without people getting hurt, too. So. Crazy. Yeah. So how long were you in the Army overall? Overall, just a little over 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. What what made you join? Well, I think initially it was, um, you know, like a lot of guys, I was just looking for a job. Sure, sure. Uh, I had been working on ranches before that. And, um, you know, Marla and I had been married for a little over a year when uh, a dairy farm job I had didn't work out and she mm -hmm. says you know why don't we try something else and so I thought you know I wasn't real keen on the idea at first because my I wanted to join the army right out of high school but okay. my dad talked <clears throat> me out of it and so um I he you know all I it. could he didn't think it was a good idea for me. He had spent time in the service during the Korean War, and he just didn't think it was a good idea for me. But anyway, that's all I could think of. But after I got in, there were things that came to my mind, both 
patriotically and religiously that told me this is what you need to do. Really? This is where you're meant to be. And really, so that's why, that's why I stayed in was Mm. because of that. Yeah. So you got some distinct like moments of impression. Very distinct. Very. Wow. I, I can, even in my mind right now, I can still see where I was when those impressions mm-hmm. and feelings came to me. And and I'd only been in the Army at that time for less than a year. Well, wow. maybe a year and a half. Yeah. But I, I hadn't been in very long. It was while we were in Colorado. And, yep, I decided right then that, this is where I better stay. Yeah. That's amazing. So tell me, I know, I remember you telling us stories about when you were in basic training and for whatever reason, your hands have always been shaky, right? Yeah. And like for yeah. a while. Ever since I was about two. Yeah. Oh, really? That long? Yeah. And yeah. Do, you know, do you know why? Um, the only thing that we can figure out, and I say we, me and my parents, is my, my mom's father had kind of a a tremor. My dad's mother did, but it was Parkinson's disease, mm. and she didn't get that till she was old. Yeah. Um, but my mom's father had this tremor. And then you inherited we it. We can only guess that <laughs> yeah, that's where it came from. My so, sister had it, and oh, really? We we have discovered that my little grandson has it. Too. Really? So that yeah. that caused some problems when you were doing like salutes, right? <laughs> Tell us did. about that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> While you're in basic training, they teach you the correct way to salute. Yeah. And you really have to keep your hands stiff and still. Yeah. And if and you know the drill sergeants are only like that far away <laughs> from you when they come up to you and my hands are shaken because of my tremors. Oh no. And then the the more you try and get them to stop, <laughs> right. the worse it becomes. <laughs> and the drill sergeants thought I was on drug and alcohol withdrawals. And so And you were this Mormon were boy to, who was as clean as uh, ever. Uh, yeah, and I tried to tell them that, but they weren't having any of it. And so they made me do push-ups, and you do so many push-ups, you get muscle failure, and then that makes it even worse because you can't hold your hand up. So they were just making it worse. Oh, it was bad. Yeah, it was bad. And those moments in basic training, I remember thinking, oh, man, what have I got myself right. into? Oh man. Well, I do remember another story you told too, where like you would have to lead your group in like, what are they called? Like shout outs? I don't know the name. They're called cadences. Cadence. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. So you can keep everybody needs to stay in step. You know, uniformity is the big thing in the service. And so whether you're running or walking, you're either counting a cadence or singing a cadence. And, yeah. um, you know, when, when they would call me out there <laughs> to sing cadences, 
because you would sing cadences most of the time when you're running and not, yeah. well, you did when you're marching too, but and weren't they pretty like explicit? Like your barracks to the motor pool or something. Yeah. Running was all around. We ran for two to five miles each day. Man. And so, you know, the guys, typical military guys, their cadences are full of cuss words yeah. and that kind of stuff. And yeah. I just wasn't into that. So when I got out there and was called out to sing cadence, I would sing nursery rhymes. <laughs> this is the best. So give us a sample. <laughs> and the first time I did that, I, I got in a little bit of trouble and, uh, why they but my commander I said no I try not to swear even though I do sometimes <laughs> but I'm not going to get out there and yeah do that if I don't have to so right I've lost your oh, there we are oh okay am I back okay yeah okay so but you'd be it, like Mary had a little yeah <laughs> yeah I did them all and I actually <laughs> well I shouldn't say I did them all but I actually went back and studied them and tried because, you, you know, did. there wasn't internet back right. then. Well, there was, but uh, so, you know, I would go to libraries and stuff and, and look these <laughs> up and make sure I knew the words to them because, you know, I didn't want to get out there and start a nursery rhyme and then not be able to finish <laughs> Hey, that is but, awesome. Did the guys seem to like it or did they give you a hard time or? They gave me a hard time at first, but you know, then they, you know, that's the one thing that, that you find out in the military that if you don't fit into <laughs> that typical military kind of, you know, swearing, drinking, hard, yeah. woman chasing kind of guy. <laughs> That at first, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll stand out. The guys will kind of get after you and, yeah. you know, but then they realize that you're not going to back down from it. You're yeah. not going to yeah. bend to peer pressure. And so they start to respect what you do and how you do things. And, you know, I'm not going to try and say that my mouth was completely clean all of the time, <laughs> except for when I sang cadence. <laughs> When I was chewing someone out and that kind of stuff, yeah, there were a few words that would slip out. Well, I remember, too, that, like, uh, my mom would tell stories of, like, because we weren't in the military, but we knew a lot of military people. We were friends. And she would always just die laughing when the husbands would be out on the field. And, you know, the barracks were just close there. And so they'd be, you know, they could sometimes see the military's training, their their husbands, their wives and family. But, um, you know, my mom would visit him and she'd be like, you know, where's your husband? He's like, he's on the field. And she'd be like, well, can he come home? She's like, no, they're training. And they'd be like, you know, feet away from each other. Yeah. They'd have to camp out and everything. And she was just like, I'm so confused. Why can't they come home at night? I remember your mom asking me that sometimes too. And yeah, that was. She's like, wait, what? It just doesn't make sense. And it really doesn't. I don't, you know, 
it depended though on what your job was. Those guys that were in the field right there by the yeah. barracks were like the headquarters kind of uh, commo, um, you know, more logistics kind of people. Yeah. For me, I was in the infantry. And so when, when those kind of drills happened, we weren't actually right there in the field. We had to go out to the full to gap area yeah. and set up in our areas out there. So me personally, I never had that mm, problem yeah. of being right there by the house, but <laughs> I could, I could see that that would be, uh, that was, that is kind of unexplainable. Just that typical right. military, military kind of government. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Where you just shake your head and say, okay. And well, I look back on that too. <laughs> and I do shake my head at some of that stuff thinking, oh, well, I, we, my mom tells the story too. We had a friend come over. He was in uniform one day and he, it was raining and he came and he was soaked. And my mom was like, why didn't you use an umbrella? And he's like, well, it wasn't like, it wasn't part of the uniform. Yeah. And it was like, really? You can't yeah. use the you can't use an umbrella you if it's can. not if it's not like if you're in uniform, you can't use anything that's not part of your uniform. <laughs> right? Like, like what the? <laughs> just, I know <laughs> it's it, it, and times. some of those things just you know. People ask me sometimes, what's the craziest thing you did when you're when you were in the service? And yeah. I tell them every single time, the craziest thing is I kept signing my name on that dotted line saying, yeah, I want to do this for four more years. You know? <laughs> All this crazy stuff. I want to keep on doing it. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so what other places were you stationed? I know for a while you were a couple of times you were in Saudi Arabia in Iraq. Yeah. Uh, Where else I, were you? Well, I started out in Colorado at Fort Carson, then went to Germany the first time, mm -hmm. and then came back to um, the States and was in Georgia. Oh, right. While I was in Georgia and Colorado, I did training um deployments to California and Louisiana to Fort Irwin and Fort Polk. And then after Georgia, we went back to Germany. Mm -hmm. And then that's when I went to Desert Storm was the second time I was in Germany. My unit was called out to go to the war. And uh, I spent uh, about six months over in Saudi Arabia and in Iraq and was out in the desert being an infantry yeah. guy. We were, we were. What were you doing there. over there? We were, um, well, an infantry unit, you know, we were part of the attack. Once the ground war started, uh, Schwarzkopf um, operated that air war for about 45, 50 days first. Yeah. And then sent the ground troops in and uh, we went in and, you know, this kind of a cold way to put it, but we did the cleanup, you know, yeah. we, we took down whatever resistance there still was and yeah. 
some people went into Kuwait to make sure the Kuwaitis got liberated and mm. the rest of us were, you know, driving towards Baghdad and we got stopped about 50 miles outside of Baghdad and told us, you know, to stop and they were going to end the ground war because Saddam Hussein had surrendered at wow. that time. But uh, yeah, there was a lot of... I bet that was a scary time. You know, it was scary at first to start out because, you know, you know you're going against people that are going to be shooting back at you. Yeah. But Hussein was not a very good um, commander of his national troops. He didn't oh, give really? them the support they needed. They'd yeah. been out in the desert for weeks and weeks without, you know, food and some. So they were pretty weak. Yeah, they were yeah. weak and tired and just wanted to, you know, just wanted to give up. So a lot of those guys just gave up. Yeah. Uh, but their firepower, the firepower that we ran into was nothing compared to what we had. Oh, wow. And so the fear that at least in me anyway, the fear, it was always there that, you know, a bullet could find you or a tank round could find your vehicle or whatever. Sure. But our, our military might was just so overwhelming. Okay. That, um, you know, if you're, if your listeners go on to Google and, and Google highway of death, they'll see uh, the carnage that wow. the U.S. military left behind as we made our way into Iraq. Yeah. Tough stuff. Yeah. I do remember you mentioning that, like, on some of your time in Saudi, um, when you had some downtime and you, you were able to do, like, some – golfing and you're able to do go to church and what was that like yeah this that those things were actually on the i had uh, three additional assignments in saudi besides the wartime one mm -hmm. and those were the times that um you know we saw a little downtime mm -hmm. and and got to do some of those things and the u.s and and british uh engineers military engineers went out into the desert and laid out a regulation nine hole golf course out there. That's awesome. And we had to carry around little square pieces of AstroTurf to hit our ball off of. And uh, awesome. the, the greens were, everything was sand out there, but yeah. the greens were like a sand box, just real nice sand. They had hauled some, some sandbox sand out there to make them a little nicer, but they also put a mixture of um, diesel and oil fuel into the sand. Wow. And so when you'd hit onto the green, you'd go up there and putt, and then to make sure you left the sand flat, Yeah. they had these little push, um, they're like, they remind me of steamrollers, they're about that big around, full of cement, and you push those things over the green and rolled out your foot tracks and your ball tracks and 
all that kind of stuff and then went on to the next hole and sometimes um, it was so hot out there that we used our jeeps as our golf carts because <laughs> the jeeps we had um actually had air conditioning in them they weren't military oh, jeeps they were okay. civilian jeeps okay and so you know it was nice to have an air-conditioned vehicle to ride around in because some of those days we went out there it was like 120 degrees Man. i don't know why we would even try and play golf in that kind of weather but yeah but i love too that you you know you were kind of trying to stay mentally sane and trying yeah. to have some like re-energize a bit because there is absolutely nothing to do over there mm. they don't have movie theaters they don't have you know the kind of things that we do around here um I learned how to scuba dive in the Red Sea when I was what? over there. And, um, you know, we went to the Red Sea quite a few times. And and you're right. I mean, it was just those things that you did to try and put some kind of normalcy in your lifestyle, you know. Yeah, yeah. But, well, I'm sure you were missing your family like crazy. You had two boys at home and your wife and there wasn't this kind of stuff either right. there wasn't you know zoom or skype or any of that kind of stuff so we got to call them once in a while but because you know back then long distance phone calls cost money and yeah it was expensive and so you know we didn't do that a whole lot either but it was uh it was an experience that's for sure yeah. to be over and that part of the world we did get to travel around a little bit on one of my assignments and I got to go to Jordan and to uh, Egypt cool. and um, to um, well there was one other place that I got to go and I can't remember where that was now but the one place I wanted to go that mm -hmm. I couldn't go was over into Israel Oh, yeah. And the reason is because they wouldn't let me back into Saudi Arabia with an Israeli visa stamp in my passport. Mm. And a lot of the guys had two passports. This was the diplomatic assignment I was on. And, and most guys carried a diplomatic passport. Well, we all carried a diplomatic passport. And then others carried a, a regular civilian, their own personal passport. Well, I didn't even think about that. If oh, I would have had a personal passport, I could have done that. But um, I, I wouldn't have been able to come back into Saudi Arabia if mm. I got an Israeli visa in my passport. Yeah. So, yeah, it was, uh, it's a weird weird situation over there mm. the hatred between those people is just so deep and mm. inbred that yeah generation you know, back yeah i mm. think it all started back when abraham had isaac with his wife and ishmael with his hand made yeah and those two kids started fighting behind the tent and that's when it started. <laughs> those two kids, darn it. Those, those two <clears throat> kids started it all. <laughs> and it's just continued. Yeah. But yeah if, yeah, if you look at and you talk to them about their 
lineage back mm-hmm. in those days. You know, the Israelis will lead you back to Ishmael and the the Muslims or the Arabs will lead you back to to or Isaac, I mean, for the Israelis and Ishmael for the for the Muslims. Yeah, and, yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. It's been a long time. Yeah. So there was, and you also were a, a leader, a platoon leader, sergeant. I don't know all of the platoon terms. Platoon sergeant. Okay, yeah. Sir, sergeant. Yeah. Um, I remember you telling us stories about that, how you, you'd be the one yelling at people and getting in there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you had to come up with some creative ways to get people to do what you wanted them to do because in that kind of work you know when you're in the the combat arms part of the military as a leader you have to be um non-judgmental and Mm. no discrepancies whatsoever when you're picking someone to go on a mission that could possibly cost them their lives right and so you need them to have that kind of a mentality too to do whatever they're told to do without without question and I say without question that comes with some you know some asterisks I guess I mean I would never follow unlawful orders and you're not you know you're not um, required to do that kind mm-hmm. of stuff either. But, um, you know, I mean, most of us are just kids coming out of our mom and dad's houses. Well, me, I was married for a year or so, but, you know, we're just kids off the street trying to learn how to be army guys and you, right. you have to be creative. And <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I was, <laughs> I did, a lot of things that were that were at the time it may have seemed to other people being mean and cruel yeah um but i learned really quick the power of peer pressure mm. when i was in the service Interesting. and you know like when we'd come back from the field and the first thing you had to do was clean all of your stuff you know so it would be ready for the next time you go out. So we had inspections on that stuff, you know, a couple of days after just to make sure everybody got their stuff clean. And, you know, I have a, either a platoon of, of 30 guys or a, a company of 130 guys. And I'd be walking through inspecting stuff. And it didn't matter if it was the first guy or the last guy, the first person I found with something dirty, I would tell everybody, okay, inspection's over, go re-clean your stuff, and we'll see you here tomorrow morning, you know, five o'clock. And man, I'll tell you what, peer pressure, because all of those guys that knew their stuff was clean. They'd be mad. (laughs) They would be real mad. Yeah. And so... And then, you know, I'd get out there and be running with these guys and, and some guys just couldn't keep up. And that, that always irritated me after I started getting into the leadership positions, 
because all those guys were younger than me. Most of them like, were younger on, than yo. me <laughs> when I was a private because I went in so late. But uh, so, like, there were times when I would get um, – they always had these kind of things laying around for different kinds of training, but I'd have four telephone poles and you have four squads in your, in your platoon. So I'd make each squad pick up a telephone pole and we'd go running. And, you know, I would run until they just couldn't make it anymore. And then we'd have to carry the telephone poles back to where they were supposed to be. Or um, while we were running down, if one guy started falling back, yeah, then I, I started making the guys in his squad, while the platoon was running, the guys in his squad had to run around the platoon <laughs> as the rest of the oh, platoon no. was running. And yeah, it didn't take long for those guys to get this guy, you know, in shape. Shape. To- I remember Marla, your wife, would say, oh, but he's such a big teddy bear. And you'd yeah. be like, shh, don't tell, say that around the guys. I got to keep my cred. He caught me in a lot of trouble with that, too. I tried to be a hardcore kind of guy, but she worked at the hospital and she had a picture of me on her desk down there. And she worked in admissions. So a lot of guys, well, if you were admitted for yeah. anything you know you had to see her yeah and there were guys that came up there i think i know that guy he looks like and that was a picture <laughs> of me and my blues i think or something and they said i that looks like sergeant garlic and she says it is and they would talk about how mean i was and she'd say oh he's not like that at all he's just a big old teddy <laughs> you can't tell him that <laughs> Like, they will not take me seriously out there. That's right. <laughs> Don't ruin my cred. <laughs> there was one time when we were in Saudi Arabia, one of my assignments over there, um, my there was a friend of ours that actually used to be my babysitter. Oh, no. Whose son was in the Air Force over in Saudi Arabia. And it just so happened that we were housed in the same area, and he found out I was over there. Oh, no. So he came over to where I was at, and my unit was on a one-day guard, one-day training, and one-day off cycle. So, you know, we were – and the days off, I normally just slept. Sure. Uh, Because the other two days, being the leader, you know, you were going all the time. So he came over on one of my days off and he came into the little wreck area where my guys were watching TV. Oh, no. and he says, he says, um, I, I want to see if I can talk to Monty. And they all kind of looked at each other and said, Who's Monty? We, don't, we don't know Monty. <laughs> he said, Oh, Sergeant garlic. And he says, Oh yeah, yeah. He's back in back there sleeping. And he said, can you go, <laughs> wake him up and tell him I'm here and every single one of them said no no way if you want to wake him up you go wake him up so <laughs> so I you know I put the fear into him but 
I mean, I always had good guys. I always had guys that, you know, did what we were supposed to do and learned what they were supposed to learn. And, um, you know, I, I feel like that, that, you know, even though I had to be mean with them, I think the difference between what I did and what a lot of other sergeants did was I wasn't mean to them just because I was wearing the stripes. Right. I was only mean to them if I had to be mean to them or stern or yeah. whatever Teach it was, them. you know. Yeah, yeah, and get them prepped, yeah. Right. Whereas I, other, would you see other leaders that would do it just because of the stripe? Yeah, yeah. just because they could. I mean, they would yell at guys just because they could. And, you know, you kind of lose it in my mind, you kind of lose your effectiveness if you're yelling at them all the time, uh, because then that becomes nothing but just talking to them loud, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And my dad taught me to, before I joined the army, he said, you know, anybody can be bossy, but it takes a little bit of skill to be the boss. Mm. And so I tried to keep that in mind too, not to just be bossy, but to, I, I wanted people to know that I was the guy in charge, but I was also, you know, approachable if they needed me. Yeah. To be. And, yeah. And I was, I mean, we talked earlier about, you know, having guys come in my office and we talked about wives and kids and that kind of stuff. But, um, you know, there were the times and places. Yeah, yeah. Well, and we knew you as the teddy bear side. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, you know. The top secret side of you. <laughs> <laughs> that's the thing, you know, you tell, even though you knew me while I was in the service, mm -hmm. you didn't know that service part of me, right? you know. Um, unfortunately, my wife and kids got that sometimes. I sure. wasn't able to separate the two all of the time. Well, that's tough stuff. It to is separate. Yeah. 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 Well, we were joking earlier, too, for up until just a few years ago, I swore you were colorblind. <laughs> so it's still. <laughs> I don't know why, but that is so funny. <laughs> okay. I distinctly remember in Germany, I don't know how old I was, five, seven, I don't remember, but we were coloring some Donald Duck coloring book. And I think you colored the duck blue or green or something. And we were like, Monty, what, where are you coloring blue? And, he's like, and you were like, oh, I'm colorblind. And you were just joking, but we just took that to mean you were oh, colored man. and so up until like a few years ago i firmly <laughs> believe whenever i'd see an article about someone being colorblind or whatever i would be like oh this body and then oh, i man. i think i sent you <laughs> i think i sent you an article a couple of years ago or something and i brought it up and you're like you know i'm not colorblind yeah. I was like, yeah, you are. You told me you were. You wouldn't lie to me like <laughs> that, would you? <laughs> like years and years oh, of this. Man. Oh, jeez. <laughs> that is just hilarious. Like, I don't know man. why that's so funny. Monty does pretty good for being colorblind. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, man. Oh. That's awesome. It's a good thing he doesn't have to color coordinate. And he wears a uniform every day. He doesn't have to worry about Because that. that would be rough for him. Oh, man. Oh, that's funny. So how long have you been been out of the military? You know, uh, it's... It's weird. This year, I will have been out as long as I was in. I've wow. been out almost 20 years. Wow. At the end of this year, first part of next year will be 20 years wow. that I've been out. I can't believe that time Crazy. has gone by that quick. Yeah. yeah. So what I know we've, you've talked about this a bit and you're, you're open about a lot of things when it comes to PTSD, but maybe explain a little bit, if you can, just what, what that's been like, just kind of the after effects of, you know, your experiences. Um, you know, I, I think the reason people, and it's not just military people, but, you know, the first responders, the police, the, anybody that that goes through um traumatic experience i mean even my therapist has kind of helped us explain that you know someone that's been in a horrific car accident can sometimes suffer some symptoms of ptsd sure um but mine came from being in the war and then also, while I was in the service, I did an assignment with the Drug Enforcement Agency in California, wow. and uh, we uh, spent the majority of our time out in the forest um, fighting the drug growers out mm. there. And, uh, you know, when you spend, even when you're just training and you spend your whole life um your mindset is you have to be on alert all All the the time time. and um you know that's part of the ptsd is i i you know i i can't seem to settle down Mm -hmm. a lot of places you know i have to scope out restaurants when we go i sit in the far back corner so i can see everybody in the Mm -hmm. restaurant I uh, make sure that I know the the best way to escape, the first place to hide, the first place to put my wife if I need to protect right. her. I mean, I do all that before I even sit down at the table. Wow. And uh, I sit at the back of the church and, um, you know, I just, you, it's sometimes emotionally and sometimes even physically just draining to be on that kind of alert all the time but then there's the thoughts of you know the death that you've seen and the Mm -hmm. the carnage that you've seen and and that you've caused and uh you know you have what they call uh, survivor's guilt mm-hmm. on why you made it and people you know didn't. And, uh, you know, there were over in Saudi Arabia two different times, the buildings that I know three times, the buildings that I was in 
the first time was during the war. We were housed in a warehouse before they sent us out into the desert. And the day after they sent us out into the desert, a Scud missile hit that warehouse. That was the, the first casualties of the Gulf War was the 27 guys that got killed in that warehouse. And then two other buildings um, got blown up by car bombs. And you uh, knew just, you knew some of those guys. Yeah. Man. Yeah. I mean, I had just left those buildings just, you know, a day or within days of that happening. So the first one that happened, I knew about 10 of those guys. Yeah. And the second one that happened, I knew 12 of them. And they found a they found a bomb in our building that I worked in over in Saudi Arabia at one time, and you know those kind of things just make you scared of everything. And because you're so tense all the time and so worried all the time, the anger starts to come out, and the feelings of of wanting to um, just hunker down somewhere and be by yourself and not have to worry about anything or anybody. Sure. Um, and, you know, I look back on, I, I've only been in therapy for maybe about four, four going on five years now. Yeah. And so before that, I look back on how I dealt with this. Mm -hmm. and, and even while I was still in service, I can see that I was starting to deal with it at the end of my service time. And, and, um, you know, I, I was meaner than I, and I wasn't sure. abusive or anything, but sure. I wasn't as loving as I should have been to my wife and my kids and, right. and friends. And, you know, I, it was, um, I, I look back on after I got out of service, I started buying horses again and spent oh, a lot yes. of time out I with my horses that. and training horses. And I took up roping a little bit and uh, that seemed to be kind of therapeutic for me. But yeah. unbeknownst to me, really. You know, I didn't realize that I was kind of dealing with this stuff until Marla kind of said, you know, you have to go get some help. Mm, she noticed, yeah. Because I was waking up from dreams in tears. And, oh, you man. know, in our bedroom back here, there's a hole in the wall where I woke up and punched the wall because I thought I was somewhere in a fight, you know. And, sure. Um. I don't know. I can't go to Fourth of July celebrations. Yeah, the know, sounds, fireworks, and that kind of stuff. Well, and, weren't you saying? I remember you saying one time your neighbor across the street was he like yeah. playing a joke on you or something? No, he wasn't playing a joke. Okay, what was, it was he doing? It was right after we moved in here. I was Marla and I both were still working at the IRS. Yeah. And, but we were working the swing shift. So I wasn't getting home until about two o'clock in the morning. And for some reason, Marla wasn't there that day. Maybe she had the day off or something. But anyway, I came home, parked out in front of the house mm -hmm. and just barely got out of my truck. Well, 
Doug, who's the guy that lives across the street, he, you know, we live out in the country where people have water rights and that kind mm-hmm. of stuff to water property. And so when you have those, you have an assigned time during a 24 hour period that you have to use that water or you lose it. Yeah. yeah. And so he was out watering his grass and his pasture and stuff. Um, but he always had his gun with him because we've got a lot of skunks and raccoons mm. around here and he's got chickens over there. And he just happened to be shooting at a skunk. (coughs) Well, it just startled the heck out of me. I bet. I dove under on the ground and crawled underneath my truck and was under there for, you know, maybe a good 10 seconds Mm. until I heard Doug call my name because he heard me shut my truck door. Well, he heard the truck come up, obviously, but he heard he heard me shut my truck door, so he called my name out a couple times, and then it kind of brought me back to, you know, where I was at, yeah. I crawled out from under the truck, but, I mean, we laugh about it now, but, yeah, it was... The time. Know, one of the, well, the first time we were, I came... When I barely got back from uh, the war, when we were still in Germany, we went to one of those little fests that they have in the towns over there all the time, you know. And I actually didn't realize this until then, but we had just got out of the car and they started shooting off fireworks and I did exactly the same thing. I fell on the ground and rolled underneath our car and, you know, it took me a few seconds to realize I'm okay, you know. Yeah. I don't have to, but it's it's those kind of things that are obvious triggers. Sure. Um, you know, loud noises when they surprise me, um, really get me. Uh, being around big crowds, I'm I'm dealing with better now than I have in the past. Yeah. Um, but uh, sometimes that's tough stuff, Monty. It's tough stuff. You know, it, 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 people say that to me. My mom says all the time, oh, I just wish you didn't have to deal with that all the time. And yeah, I mean, it would be nice not to, but I, I look at some of the guys that I know and some guys that you see coming back from you know, the war now that are not only do they have PTSD, but they've got missing hands or missing legs or, you know, real traumatic brain injuries. And, uh, you know, it just could be so much worse, not to minimize what me or anybody else deals with what I deal with at all, but I just have to tell myself, you know, that it could be worse. And if I don't remind myself of that, sometimes that puts me into kind of a funk too, because I start Hmm. feeling sorry for myself and, you know, singing the blues and sure. (laughs) uh, Yeah. What, what advice do you have for, for someone who thinks they might have PTSD, whether that's from a traumatic experience or, or serving in the military or what, what resources would you give them? I think the thing that that people should realize is 
and and everybody in my group feels the same way too that you can't be afraid to talk about it that's the biggest thing that helps people i think is whether it's to a therapist or their siblings or parents or friends or whatever it might be you can't be afraid to talk about it and feel a little bit vulnerable you know i think that's why a lot of military guys don't like to do it because we think it makes us look weak sure and we're not that big tough military guy that we used to be you know right um so that would be my my piece of most important advice is to don't be afraid to talk to somebody but if you have the resources and you know the finances if that's what's needed or whatever whatever find a good therapist and i mean one that fits you good and uh, there's therapists out there that are are good therapists but they're not a for good whatever fit reason, yeah. yeah they just don't fit with you know some people and and i've been through that experience a couple of times so um, you know, don't settle for the first one if you don't feel comfortable with that one, you know. Um, but that, I think that's, that's a good thing for people to do too. And, and again, that's going to entail that you don't be afraid to talk about yeah. what you're dealing with, you know. I, I think my therapist, it took me four or five visits maybe even more than that with her to finally kind of open up about mm. some of the things that I was dealing with you know so well and you were telling me about a group that you're a group therapy you're part of where you guys all um can relate and you you miss being together especially during corona and everything yeah of that that you found kind of a support yeah and I think the thing that's that's good about that is even though, like we were talking about earlier, those guys are all Vietnam veterans, mm -hmm. and I'm a little too young to be a Vietnam veteran. You're the baby of the group. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> but but still, when we tell our stories, there's, I mean, it, it's like we all went through the same thing, mm -hmm. you I know. Bet. I mean, it's combat experiences. It's it's death, it's life and death decisions. Um, you know, it, it's just kind of the same thing. And it's good to know that someone else is dealing with the same thing yeah. you're dealing with. And they're not weak. They don't look weak or sound weak or any of that kind of stuff. So yeah, 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 the group has been a really good thing for me and that's been another one of those things that's that's helped me open up a little bit more too yeah uh, well and you said you, you oh go ahead, go ahead sorry i was gonna say you you had horses for a while and then did you didn't you have a motorcycle or do you still i i had a motorcycle yeah. uh and that was a lot of fun marla yeah. and i used to go that's riding awesome. on that uh, when Marla got her cancer, um, I had to sell that to pay for hospital bills and stuff. But uh, we want to get another motorcycle because we had a lot of fun with that. Yeah. It, was, it was a blast. Yeah, I love the idea of just having some things that help you 
to have some downtime and to keep, keep put your focus on. I think that's a, a good idea too. Um, you know, I make these survival bracelets. That's right. This happens to be a watch band, but um, love that. I I have done that as part of my self-imposed therapy because it kind of helps you, like you say, you know, stay focused on things and kind of keeps you in the moment. That's that's the whole thing that I've been taught and learned about from the therapy is staying in the moment. Don't let your mind wander off into these places that yeah. that you know make you anxious and mad and that kind of stuff but, yeah uh that i think that's a good thing is to pick up one or two hobbies that kind of you don't want to turn into jobs you want them to be enjoyable yeah. for you yeah. so uh i do these bracelets and i play golf in the summer mm. times and about Two months ago, I started teaching myself how to speak Spanish. That's awesome. So, and you did um, hockey for a while, didn't you? I did hockey, and you did a, Zumba too. I did Zumba. That was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I did Zumba for quite a while. I did hockey until I got a concussion and couldn't do hockey anymore. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. It was. I've done a lot of things over the time since I've been out of um, the service to maybe unconsciously that's been to kind of keep my mind yeah. busy, you know? Yeah. But. Well, Monty, you're so great to, to chat today and to share some of your wisdom and advice and awesome stories. Thanks for, thanks for interviewing. Well, thank you for asking me. It's it's nice just to talk to you. I, you know, your family's always been special to us, so it's just been nice to talk to you and hear your voice and see well, your face. Well, we love you guys, and that I I'm so glad that we're we met when I thought you were colorblind. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thanks so much, Monty. Oh, I will put, sure. do you want me to put a link in this um, video for your bracelets? Uh, sure. Okay. I mean, if I, I that's kind of all I do them for now is when people ask me for yeah. them. I used to just keep a whole bunch of them. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, if people want them, sure. I'll, yeah, I love that. Yeah, yeah I'll, sure. I'll, I'll put out the link. Well, thanks okay. again, Monty. You bet. Thank you. Take it's good care. to see you, Alicia. Thanks for joining me on Pink Girl Podcast. Tune in next time.